Hello and welcome to the Try Talking Sport podcast hosted by me, Joanne Murphy. Whether you are an athlete, adventurer, endurance enthusiast or simply have an interest in sport, you have come to the right place for inspiration, encouragement, motivation and as always plenty of entertainment. What a whirlwind the last two weeks have been. I'm still on a high from the incredible week we had in Kona at the VinFast Ironman World Championships. It was all go all week. It was a lot of hard work, but it was so much fun. The week flew by in a blur. There were so many highlights to the week. I probably need to do a podcast on my experience in Kona so that I can remember just how thrilling it was. I'll share one highlight here now, and that was when I was presented with the lay on Tuesday night for the Ikoma Mai Welcome Banquet, I had already announced the Kona Town Run and the Hoala Swim, emceed the Parade of Nations and hosted the Oceania Breakfast, all before the Welcome Banquet. But it wasn't until the lay was placed on me before I went up on stage that I thought, holy moly, I'm here. I'm in Hawaii, about to go on stage and be introduced as part of the World Championship announcing team. It was very surreal and very special. There are so, so many highlights across the week, not least the numerous celebrations for the voice of Ironman Mike Riley, who, from my very first Ironman event in Galway in 2011, has been an integral part of my success as an announcer. So it was extra special to celebrate his final World Championships as part of his team, along with Paul Kay, who has also played a huge role in my journey to the Big Island. I owe a huge debt of gratitude to both Mike and Paul, who have been advocates, mentors, and most of all, great friends to me over the past 11 years of my announcing career. If you were following the Kona spam on my socials, you will have seen that we had a super team of announcers in Kona. Eric Gilson and Tom Zebert, who are no strangers to the Big Island, along with fellow female announcer Carissa Galloway, and our man on the music, Andy Riley. As a team, we had so much fun. So much fun, it was almost unbelievable. And I haven't even mentioned the racing or the results that unfolded on both race days. I think I will have to do a Kona podcast to capture all of that excitement. My feet have barely touched the ground since I left Kona last Tuesday. I did manage to catch up on some much needed sleep during the week in Tempe and then had the pleasure of working with Nick Edwards on the microphone for Ironman 70.3 Arizona on Sunday. Huge thanks to Judy, Jen, Max and all the team in Tempe for the warm welcome and a super day of racing. I promise I didn't bring the rain from Galway to Arizona, resulting in the cancelled swim. This week, and right now, I'm in Sacramento for Ironman California, my final event with Mike Riley, before heading to St. George for the Ironman 70.3 World Championships, another exciting two weeks ahead for my announcing adventures. Closer to home, keep an eye on the Try Talking Sport website for some fascinating and insightful Kona race reports from our Irish athletes. They will be published over the next few days. Shout out to our Emma Porter, who competed for Ireland in the UCI Gravel World Championships. Unfortunately, a mechanical saw her race plan go out the window, but she finished the race and there is plenty more to come from her over the coming weeks and months. Plus, she has been playing a blinder, keeping the website up to date whilst I've been off gallivanting in America. There's lots of news to catch up on over on the site, so go check it out. Plus, she will be previewing the 70.3 World Championships and the ones to watch going into that race. Also close to home, Oliver Harkin has some one-day triathlon camps coming up on October 23rd, November 13th and December 4th. Check out all the details over on www.trytalkingsport.com. Finally, a very special shout out this week goes to the incredible Damien Brown, who, after 112 days at sea, successfully completed his row from New York to Galway. If you have been following Damien's voyage, you will know that it was a mental and physical feat almost beyond measure to complete that row. 
an incredible story that should be turned into a movie. Check out his Deep Roots podcast for the raw account of his row home from one side of the Atlantic to the other. Now, as always, before we get into this week's episode, a big shout out to our partners, Nuasan, who continue to support the show. I am still using their products religiously whilst I'm here in the States, so much so I've almost run out of the body moisturiser and might need to get our Galway girls, Natasha Carrick and Rose Lynch, to bring some out to Utah when they land here for the Ironman 70.3 World Championships. If you want to check out the products for yourself, go to www.newasan.com and use the code TTS15 to get 15% discount on your purchase. Now to this week's episode, which is simply fabulous. Much like our guest, Cherie Grunfeld. Cherie has embraced a life in sport and specifically in triathlon for three decades. Taking up the sport at the age of 48, last week in Kona at 78 years of age, she became the oldest female ever to complete the Ironman World Championships in Kona, her 14th world title on the Big Island. An incredible achievement for the author, advocate, coach and all-round inspirational athlete who has achieved more in sport than many of us can dream of. In addition to her 14 Ironman World Champion titles, she is a four-time Ironman 70.3 World Champion, a WTC Female Athlete of the Year, a multiple USA Triathlon Female Grandmaster of the Year, an inductee to the USAT Hall of Fame, and in 2020 was inducted into the Port Angeles High School Athletic Hall of Fame for her success in badminton. Cherie truly embraces the life of an athlete, living and breathing the sport of triathlon. When she is not training for her own races, she is using her passion, dedication and commitment to triathlon to help change the lives of children in inner city San Bernardino in California. The Exceeding Expectations Foundation, which Cherie founded, has for 20 years been encouraging at-risk children to move their lives in a positive direction using the sport of triathlon as the vehicle. Cherie is softly spoken, yet her tenacity, courage and determination is stronger than many people half her age. She is a shining star in sport and in life. Her age may be slowing her down physically in sport, but her appetite for life and for success shows no signs of slowing down. She may have made her final appearance on the finish line in Kona this year, but we can expect to see her on plenty more finish lines before she stops racing altogether. This is a truly inspiring episode of the podcast, and if you ever thought you couldn't do something or that you are too old to try something new, then Cherie is the epitome of you can do anything you set your mind to, you just have to give it a try. Now, go grab a cuppa and enjoy the show. Cherie Grunfeld, welcome to the Try Talking Sport podcast. This is really cool. <laughs> Happy to be here. Where exactly are you in the world? I'm in Tempe in Arizona at the moment, but by the time this podcast goes live, I'll be in Sacramento in California. I'm in uh, California in my home in Palm Springs. Oh, nice. What's the weather like there? This is what we call beautiful. It's like 90, 95 degrees. And I know some people think that that's hot, but for us, that's just beautiful. This is the best time of the year, one of the best times of the year for us here now. So is that hotter than Kona or is it a, a different type of heat? Well, both. It's hotter and it's drier. But uh, during the summertime, we sometimes have hot, 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 like 115 degrees and uh, high humidity. So it can be really, really ugly, which is one of the things that pushed me out of doing Ironman for a few years. <laughs> it's it's tough training here. Wow, I can imagine because I know even when we were standing still in Kona, it was roasting and the sweat was dripping off us. Now, I know I'm Irish and I'm not used to that warm weather <laughs> or that humidity. But at one point, I mean, there was more sweat 
on my legs than there probably was um, sun cream. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. Those are tough conditions. You know, my training here, living and training here, really helped me prepare for that. We are just a week after that uh, fantastic race day we had on the Thursday of the 2022 Ironman World Championship, where you became the oldest female ever in the history of the World Championships to cross the finish line at 78 years of age. How in the name of God did you do it? (laughs) Well, the first thing I will tell you is I never, ever intended to do this to till I was this age and to this was not a goal I ever strove for to be the oldest but uh, I will tell you it is it's tough at 78 it is it is uh I have to fight thinking about what it was like in other words out on that course and I'm working at a certain level and feeling how tough it is and remembering that some years passed, it just wasn't this tough. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this is, this happens to us all. And I believe, I've always lived my life thinking, as I've gotten older, thinking we have to age, but we don't have to get old. And so I just keep powering away and doing what I can do. You know, you take what you got right now and do the best with it that you can. How many times have you now raced in Kona? 22. 22 times. And this was the Mm -hmm. 14th time that you were crowned the world champion. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) It's insane when you think about it. Well, you know, it's been a 30 year run. Uh, I, I went from 92 to 2015, just missing two years with injuries of some kind. And then I decided that the, I just, I always said that when the training wasn't fun any longer, it was time to walk away from it. And in 2015, I was out training on the bike. I was doing a 70 mile ride. It was 118 degrees and the fire, actually some firemen came up in their truck and said, you have got to get off the road. He said, you shouldn't be out doing this. And I said, I'm just 10 miles from home. I'm okay. And they got in one of their littler trucks and followed me all the way home. That's how intense it was. And I thought to myself while they were behind me and I was getting home, I'm not enjoying this. And I think it's time to walk away. So I did. I said, if I can have a a race I'm really proud of in 2015, I will walk away. And I did. I had a really special race. I walked away. I was happy as could be just doing the 70.3s. And uh, then in 2019, I turned 75. And there was a record in the female 75, 79. And I thought, whoa, I think I could get that. So I decided one more time I would go back. So I started training. I qualified. Training was going very well. And um, I wasn't feeling the age as much. You know, I was really confident in this. And in July, I was diagnosed with cancer. And so that suddenly put the halt on everything. So uh, I, I couldn't go in 2019. And I instead took care of this, got the treatments, and it's fine. By 2020, I was ready to go again. And then COVID came. 2021, COVID came. So by the time they brought the race back, I'm three years older. I'm 78. And I really wrestled with whether I should do this because if you're if you've never gone from 75 to 78, at least for me, 
it really is a huge difference between 75 and 78. And uh, I knew what I was, I thought I understood what I was getting into. And I wasn't sure that I wanted to do that. But then I realized I started this thing. Uh, I'm not one to say, okay, I'll just give it up. I needed to finish it. And uh, so I went to, uh, I decided I'd make the decision in June. I went to Honu 70.3 and had a, a good race there. And I thought, yep, I can do this. So then I put everything into to training for that. So it was a lot tougher than uh, any time before that I've been there. But I was, even though my race didn't quite work out exactly the way that I wanted it, it I was still really glad that I did it. Very, very happy that I came back and did it and one more time. Because you went from being the baby of the category at 75, potentially in 2019, to being midway in the category to nearly at the top end of it, the most senior member of the category. So there is a big jump between 75 to 78 in general life terms anyway as well, never mind taking on the 140.6 miles of of racing on, on the big island. I'd love to know what sort of day you had on Thursday because it didn't exactly go to plan. You did give us almost a little bit of a heart attack when we couldn't find you on the tracker. At one point, <laughs> we were standing in the tower waiting for you to come in. So tell the listeners how your race day unfolded in the World Championships this year. First of all, in getting ready to go to the race, as I said, in 75, I was chasing a, a record. And of course, that also meant the win. And uh, in, at when I realized I was going at 78, I really didn't know how I would perform. So I realized that in order to have an enjoyable time and do it as well as I possibly could, I needed to put aside all of that stuff that I always had done before with these firm goals for time and, and place and just look at, I want to get to the finish line. I want to have a strong race. I want to cross the finish line and be happy with my race. So that's the way I went into it. And I did uh, just in in the back of my mind have a plan for what kind of time I wanted to do in the swim and the bike and the run, just, just a general kind of plan. So I did the swim and I was 10 minutes ahead of what my plan was. And so I was pleased with that. I went out on the bike and uh, I came in four minutes ahead of what I had planned, thought that I could do on the bike. So I was feeling pretty good. And at that point, I thought, whoa, you know, maybe I could win this thing. Um, there were three other women in the age group, and two of them had both at different years had won when I was taking that sabbatical and wasn't there. So I knew that these were serious ladies. And one of them I, I had raced with forever, and, and she had was always right up there with me. So I knew that that winning was going to be tough. But when I had the good swim and bike, running has always been my strength, even though as you get older, running is where you lose the most. Um, but I began to think maybe I could win this and maybe I could hit this record. And so I started the run and uh, everything was fine. And at one point, fairly early in the run, I ran past Lee, my husband, Lee, and he yelled at me, if you keep this steady pace you can easily break the record. So I thought that was the first time I really seriously thought about it. So I was trying to keep that steady pace, which is has always been kind of my strong suit on the run, just keeping a nice steady pace. And that was going quite well 
um, until about mile 20, just, just after mile 20. Now I had throughout the race, maybe starting at mile five or six, somewhere early on, I began to feel a little something in my back. But this year, many of us wore the water belts because they moved the aid stations further apart. So for the first time, I was carrying uh, a bottle back here. And uh, I just thought that that was where the bottle was hitting and no big deal. Um, But at about mile 20 and a half, all of a sudden, my entire back just seized up. And I've never had anything like this happen. So I didn't even know what was happening to me. But I, I suddenly couldn't run a step. And I could hardly walk. And as I'm trying to walk, I realize I'm, I'm being, my back is, is, I can't stand up straight. I'm kind of bent over. But I realized that this, I didn't know what was happening, but I didn't figure that it was going to go away. Although I tried some more salt and more broth and I tried everything I could. Um, and so I, I just looked at it and realized somehow you got to get from here six miles more. And I just kept doing what I could do. And there are trees and light poles kind of along the road. And so every time I would see one, I would go over to it and grab it and pull myself up, which would give it temporary relief just to get going again. And then the minute I uh, left it, you know, I would go down again. Anyway, that's the way that I knew that I was going to have to come into the finish line. And that is the way, you know, in 21 races, I've crossed the finish line with my arms up here. And, you know, I have these great finish line pictures. Ah. And in 22, not so much. I look like a little old lady just (laughs) crossing the finish line. But, of course, the record slipped away from me. But I had a good lead in when this whole thing started and was able to hold that and take the win. So I was grateful to be there, grateful to have made it. And it gave me uh, certainly an, an, um, an appreciation. I've seen many people hunched over like that as they are coming down at Lee or as they're out on the highway. And I felt badly for them, but I never truly understood what it felt like or how tough mentally you had to be to suck it up and somehow get to the finish line. So that was certainly a good learning lesson for me. And then when you guys all met me at the finish line, I I know that many of you had been worried about me. And so to see me gave you some relief. But, you know, I felt like I was being treated like I had won the the damn race. And that uh, kind of made me feel a little guilty, but also really good, really good. So that was it. That was it. And of course, then the question came up from by many people, well, don't you want to come back and redeem yourself next year? And the answer is still no. This was the final one. This was my race. Whatever it was, this was my race. And I'm not unhappy with it. So it's amazing. Like when you think about it, there's there's people around the world who would wouldn't even go out and walk a 5K at any age. And here you are at 78, completing 140.6 miles. Um, I'd love to know how you convinced yourself to keep going when your back was giving you trouble. Many people would have quit. At 20 miles into the race, many people would have said, 
I'm done. Get me out of here. I don't want to, I just, I just can't go any further. So how did you overcome maybe the negativity that might've been in your head that was telling you to stop? What propelled you to that finish line? Uh, well, you know, that's, that's an interesting question. I will tell you that never once during that horrible hour or whatever it took, never once did that thought even cross my mind of stopping. Many people that saw me out there and people at the aid station, other racers asked me if they, if I wanted them to call for help and never, I would never have considered it. Never. And I guess when I'm out training, if I'm having a rough day, I will never quit. I will never quit. And I don't know. I, I guess that's something that I was born with or it's it's just part of my DNA. So it wasn't like I had to convince myself. The only question I asked is, how are you going to do this? And then I just prayed to God that it wouldn't at some point just, you know, that I'd just fall and have to crawl. But um, I was going to get to the finish line. And it helped to know that I had plenty of time until midnight. Uh, if I'd have been under the pressure of that, it might have really been a different story. What was your final time? 1620. And I never thought I would do this race and see 16 in my time. But uh, I figured that, well, it, it doesn't matter. I, I was aiming, it looked like I could have a, about a 1530 race. And that would have been very satisfying. But I didn't, you know. The race is 140.6 miles, and if you have troubles, you have troubles. <laughs> you sound almost disappointed, yet you've overcome so much to get to that finish line. You know, I there's of course, there's a little disappointment. Nobody wants to finish like that. But I would always temper that with, um, you know, I'm proud of it. Um, and and I will tell you, I've had uh, I had one other race in Kona where it wasn't anywhere near like this, but I had taken a fall just a couple of days before the race and cracked a couple of ribs. And the whole day was painful and slow. And uh, it was the first time I didn't make the podium and it was just not a good day. But that was still one of the races that I was most proud of. And this one is is probably the race that I'm the most proud of. And, uh, you know, when when things are going well for you, you get to the finish line and it's just, you know, that's what I planned for. I did it. When things don't go so well for you, you got to call on other things to get you there. And it's nice to know that I got the other things to get me to there. So, no, I'm not I'm not disappointed. OK, good, because you, you shouldn't <laughs> be, because it was it was a phenomenal, phenomenal achievement. I'd love to know what kept bringing you back to Kona. Why Kona every time? Um. You know, that's one of those things that you have to, if if you have to ask, you probably don't understand. And I, I think that you do understand because you've been to Kona. Um, you know, I did my first one and I just, as far as I was concerned, it was going to be one and done. I didn't expect to do more than one of them. But you get in that environment, you see what it what it's all about. And certainly the the Ironman is a perfect sport for me in many ways. And to do it in a place like Kona, where the whole island is so beautiful and so inspirational, and the people who are doing it are so beautiful and inspirational, and it's like a family. Even like on my first year, I was part of this family. And so, 
you know, after I crossed the finish line, the first line, first time, and I said to Lee immediately, I'm coming back here. I know how I can do it better next time. And the next time, and then it just became a thing. There's no way I would, that we would have missed it. So it's, it's just, it's the pull of that, the challenge of the race and the island and the people. It's it's the lure of the magic that happens there as well, isn't it? Yeah. 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 That's true. You see things, you see people do things good and bad. I mean, they have great days and bad days, but things you'd never see anyplace else and, and people just persisting through those things. I love that. I know we jumped straight in to talk about Kona and I know you will be well known with some of the American uh, based listeners that we have to the podcast. But for the listeners who are maybe based in the UK and Ireland who may not be so familiar with you, tell us a little bit about your background, maybe prior to getting into triathlon and getting into Ironman. Um, you were a runner first and foremost. Is that correct? Well, uh, yes and no. Um my story, actually, as, as I was raised before Title IX, and I don't know if your your listeners understand that, but what that meant was that there were no organized sports for women, for girls, in school. So while the boys were playing football and basketball and all these sports, girls had to be cheerleaders, couldn't do anything else. What? You didn't know about that? I, I had read something about it, but I didn't realize the extent of it, that there was no yeah. organized sport for girls. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Wow. Yeah. And fortunately, a couple of things. One is I was raised with a couple of brothers and parents who, when I would say, you know, I they won't I, they won't let me play. They just said to me, just get out there and get in the game. And um, so I did. So I grew up playing in the boys games, uh, not organized sports, but just, you know, backyard games. So I wasn't afraid to mix it up with that kind of thing. And then the second thing was I did have an opportunity to compete. Very unique thing. When I was in junior high, there was I was raised in a small town up in Washington state and there was a man in our town who knew something about badminton. And so he started a badminton program and I decided to go see what this was all about and he spotted me for some reason the first night I was there, threw me into a game and realized that I had a little something and I became a national champion in uh, badminton singles and mixed doubles. Well, now that's something I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, so um, (laughs) I was just inducted into my high school hall of fame not too long ago. And the main reason wasn't the Ironman stuff, but because of the, uh, the uh, badminton stuff. But anyway, I, I, uh, couldn't do anything with that because badminton isn't a major sport, but it did give me the opportunity to compete. Um, so then I did what was expected of me, which was to go to college, get all your degrees, go to work, work in the business world. Um, I didn't have babies, but I did get married. And, and uh, so I was working in the business world. And this leads into how I got into Ironman. It was March of 1986 on a Sunday morning, and we lived in L.A., and I picked up the paper, and I read that the first L.A. marathon was taking place. I was not a runner. I knew nobody that was a runner, but I saw this marathon was going to be on TV, so I turned it on, and I watched this race wire to wire with total fascination. So the next day, I went out and bought a pair of running shoes. (laughs) 
And I bought a book called How to Run Your First Marathon because they didn't have internet to go to and this kind of thing. And I started running. And I was going to run the LA Marathon the following March. But in August, I had Lee take me out 20 miles and drop me off. And I ran home 20 miles. And I got home and I thought, what's the big deal? (laughs) And Lee said, you're ready. Why don't you go do one now? So I found a race, the run through the Redwood Forest, and I did my first marathon. Hadn't run a 5K, hadn't run a 10K, hadn't run a half marathon. <laughs> and, uh, and I had a pretty good race. I had a good marathon. And a couple of weeks later, I was <laughs> sitting on a business meeting and looking at a magazine in, on the plane. And I read that I, that time that I had run qualified me for Boston. And, you know, you don't have to know much about running to know that Boston is the Super Bowl of running. So I didn't do the L.A. Marathon the next year. What I did was go to Boston, had a better time. And I thought, you know, I'm a marathoner. So I started running a couple of marathons a year and and started, you know, lowering my time. So that was going well. That was easy to do while I was working. I was working in a management position in the computer industry and doing a lot of traveling. So the marathon running was easy to fit in there, the running, the training. And in October of 91, I uh, that's Ironman month, and I picked up a magazine called Competitor Magazine, and it was dedicated to the Ironman. So I read it cover to cover, and my reaction was, this is nuts. Who are these people? How do they do it? I didn't own a bike. I I can swim, but I I wasn't a swimmer. Uh, but I had the run. Anyway, I so I put the magazine down, but I didn't throw it away. And Lee picked it up, and he read it, and he knew nothing about Ironman or running, but he knew, knew me pretty well. And he came to me and he said, "You should do this." And he said, "You'd be good at it." And I said, "Not interested." And went about my way. Well, he just kept kind of doing what I call a Chinese water torture, you know, just every once in a while he'd say, You should do this. You should try this. You should do it. So, anyway, uh, what happened was I finally got to the point where I decided that I'd like to give it a try. But uh, he had just recently, at that time, uh, left his nicely paying job to try his hand at writing a book. And so I was a breadwinner. So, and I said to him, I I couldn't do the job I'm doing now and train for this thing. So, you know, we'd have to put this on the back burner, which we did until February of 92, when he came home with a book contract and he put it in front of me because I said to him, I'd need six months of not working the kind of job I am now to try and get ready for this Ironman thing. He put the contract in front of me and said, put your money where your mouth is take six months off and go try this thing. And by that time I was ready to do it. So I said, (laughs) without giving it a thought, absolutely, that's what I'll do. So I went to my company and I asked them for a six month leave. And they said, not, you know, will they worked with me. I had to, I stayed for a while and, but they worked with me and, you know, I knew nothing about triathlons or Ironman, including that you had to qualify, that this was a world championship. She had to qualify. So I didn't know that. I called this this guy that I had read in a magazine that did some coaching down in San Diego. And I said to him, I'm not a triathlete, but I'm going to go to Kona in October. (laughs) And he said, how are you going to get there? Meaning, how are you going to qualify? And I thought, this man is not very bright. And so I said to him, 
kind of in a tone I shouldn't have used. Well, I thought I'd fly. And so he explained to me, you know, you've got to qualify for this thing. And since you're not a triathlete, you're probably not going to qualify for Kona. So there were just a couple of races, Ironman races in the world at that time. One of them was Canada. So he said, uh, why don't you sign up for Canada and I'll take you on and we'll teach you to do this thing. (laughs) So I did. And I got a bike and I started training with him. And uh, in August, I was doing a final half Ironman training race just before going to Canada the end of August. And I came in third. And at the awards, and I didn't even know it was a qualifying race. And until at the award ceremony, they announced that this was a qualifying race. And so they called us up to the podium. And the first place, it was a set of twins that were very well known in the Ironman world in those days. First place, she said, I've already got my Kona slot. Second place said, I've already got my Kona slot. So they said, Cherie, do you want a Kona slot? And (laughs) I need to tell you something else first. But I, without even thinking about it, I said, yes, I want that slot. In that was in August. In June, I had watched the Ironman show of the year before for the first time. And I watched it with Lee. We, <laughs> and after this show finished, I turned to him and I said, you know, it's a good thing that I can't get in that race because I have no business being there. <laughs> that was two months before without one nanosecond thinking. I said, I'll take it. I'll go. So I gave up my Canada slot and went to Kona. And that was my first, Mike Riley called me into the finish line for the first time. And that was it. That was. And did you ever go back to work? (laughs) Good question. No, uh, not that kind of work. And when I, when I called to talk to my, the CEO and said, you know, I'm, I'm not coming back. Then, you know, they had fixed, we'd set up a nice uh, fill in for me in the time. And I said, but you know, I'm, I'm not coming back. And he said, you know, we knew you weren't. Because the first month after you left, you checked in with us all the time. The second month, when we would call you, you'd answer and you'd help us out. By the third month, we couldn't find you. You were just off. And he said, we knew you weren't coming back. So, no, I never went back to the corporate world again. So what has kept you in triathlon and in Ironman for so many years? You know, as I said earlier, I I think... That Ironman racing and, well, distance racing, because the half Ironmans are the same way for me. It's the perfect sport for me because it's a tremendous challenge, certainly even more of a challenge every single year as you get older. And I, I thrive on that kind of thing. Every race you do is different. It's never the same. The conditions are different. The, the competition is different. The terrain is different. Um, so th- there's no way to ever get bored with it or f- figure like that you've got it knocked. Um, it's an individual sport where you can get out whatever you're willing to put in. And if it doesn't work for you, it's on you. If it does work for you, you know, you did it the right way. And that works for me. And then um, I-, I really, when you meet a triathlete, a distance triathlete particularly, any place in the world, in any situation, you have this bond. And I think it's because you both know uh, how tough that sport is. And um, it, it becomes a family. And, and, and I like that feeling. So for all those reasons, uh, I, I don't ever want to walk away from it, to tell you the truth. I intend to stay in it as long as I possibly can, just not the Ironman any longer. <laughs> 
So will you continue to do 70.3 distance races or will you drop down even as far as an Olympic or is it the middle distance is the next step? No, the uh, the uh, 70.3s and I'll do those as long as I am able to do them well. And, uh, I, you know, I'll include some Olympics and sprints, um, but no, I, I'm 70.3s now. So what does the typical training week look like for you on any given week, what does it look like? Kona would be slightly different, but say, for example, now to the end of the year, is this your off season or will you have another race before Christmas time? No, uh, this is pretty much, I mean, some years I have, but at this point right now, um, it's really the off season. You know, I have this program for kids, which I hope we'll get to talk about later on. And uh, I have always in the in the late October, November, December timeframe, have a lot going on with them. And those races are usually little sprint races. And so I do those sprint races with them. But um, no, I, I really don't focus on any big racing after uh, October. You know, this year they have had the uh, 70.3s championships following. And um, if I had been a few years younger, I would have done both. Uh, many years I did do both those, whether they were in September and October or October and October, not this year. And so just to come back to that question on like a typical training week. So say in, you know, four months out from Kona, what would you have been doing in terms of training? Um, swimming uh, three or four times a week. Um, biking three to four times a week and running. Um, three times, not necessarily off the bike any longer during that period of time. You know, when I'm not really focused on a race, um, I do all those things. I don't do them, them aggressively. I don't do them long. Um, I do a lot of kind of fun riding and, and swimming and running. But then when I've got a race in the distance, then I do those same things, but it's really focused, you know, and, and here's a workout where I'm going to do intensity and here's a workout where I'm going to do distance and you know and track that and I do strength work now I've started this the last few years religiously regardless of where I am in the training schedule because I believe that that's what's going to keep me in the game longer is being strong and um, I, I think it actually helped me in Kona although that last six miles I don't think that had anything to do with with strength, with not having strength, but I think it did help me have the, the good first part of the race. <laughs> Absolutely. I wanted to ask you a question with regards to maybe as we age, we slow down, we're slower doing things, especially in racing, than what we were maybe 10 or 20 years ago. How do you deal with that as you get older? So maybe comparing yourself to what you're at now versus what you were at, you know, when you were 50. You know, it's it's a really good question, and it is a, a fine line you walk. You, you want to keep pushing, because if you don't, you are going to slow down worse. Because I believe that we can do things that we don't don't know that we can do. We can keep more fitness and more speed and strength than we realize we can do. And the only way to find that is to work at it. But you also have to be prepared to accept as good stuff, what you can do today. If you look back at your training logs from at this age, even from last year, even from six months ago, you could 
get depressed. Um, so you have to believe that you can keep pushing hard and doing what you used to do just a short time ago, but accept the fact that this is what it is and this is what I'm going to try and get the most out of right now. Take what you've got right now and you work with that. It's not going to return what it used to, but you got to get 100% out of that that you have right this minute. But it is a, it's a tough mind managing game, that's for sure, because it's not fun. Yeah, and that's a that's a great answer too. It's all about being mindful and being in the moment and maybe not comparing yourself to what you were six months or six years ago. Um, but being fortunate that we understand as we age that we're we're able to do these things. There's lots of people who aren't in that position who are able to do things as they reach a, an older age group. So being able to do everything that you can do is is a blessing. I'm going to ask you now about your foundation, the Exceeding Expectations Foundation. I was reading up on it and it sounds absolutely incredible. Well, in December of 2000, I was invited to a school to speak to kids. It was a school of fifth and sixth grade kids. Um, and it was a school that's in San Bernardino, California. And your listeners may not know this, but San Bernardino is one of the poorest cities in the United States. And so I spoke to these kids. It was shortly after I came home from Kona. I spoke to these kids about setting goals and working hard to achieve the goals. And then I showed them a short video of me. Uh, and that year I had just set a new course record. And so this video was just a short clip that showed that I had set this goal and I had worked hard and I had accomplished it. And uh, so afterwards, the kids were really great. They asked good questions and we had this good thing going. So afterwards, I said to the teacher, there's a little triathlon, a little sprint triathlon coming up in a nearby town. And if any of these kids want to try it, I'd be happy to help them. I didn't understand quite what this community was like. And I envisioned, you know, a couple of kids that had parents that had bikes. This was my thought when I said that. Well, the next day, the teacher asked the kids, told them that I would be happy to help anybody that wanted to do it. And 200 hands shot up. So she called me and said, what do you, what, what do you want to do? And I said, tell the kids that I will be at the school on Saturday and anybody that's interested can come and I'll, I'll pick some kids and I'll train them for the race. Well, 200 kids didn't show up, but a lot of them did. Not a parent in sight. And so uh, I had the kids do some running. I had watched how they followed directions and so forth. And I selected 12 kids. Then I said to the teacher, I said, um, here's what we'll do. We'll send a note home to the parents explaining that their kid's been selected for this da-da-da-da-da. And she just kind of literally, figuratively grabbed me by the collar and said, Cherie, you don't get it. Come down here next Saturday and we will go to these kids' places they live. And you'll see what we're dealing with here. And on that next Saturday, my life changed. You know, I, I had seen poverty, but it had been from the outside looking in. And this time I went in and looked out and it was just hopelessness. And I, I realized then that, that we could do something. We could help these kids by getting them out and taking them to races and so forth. So I uh, went to my friends and said, you know, can you loan us some bikes? And I went to the race director and said, can you let these kids in? And I set up relays for them so that I trained them to ride the bike. And then I got someone to swim and to bike for them and took them to this race. 
And they afterwards they came to me and they said, we want to do it again. So I said, well, the next time you got to bike and run. So we trained them to do that. They did that. Then they said, want to do it again? And I said, okay, the swim. Well, this is where things almost fell apart because these kids, they don't have pools. They live 60 miles from the ocean and most of them had never seen the ocean. And um, so I said, here's the deal. You get to the swimming pool. It's the last, the swim is the last in these sprint triathlons. You get to the pool, climb on my back, in my arms. I don't care how you want to do it. I will get you to the finish line. And so that's what we did. And from that point on, they started racing. And that was good. And it, it was, I felt like we were doing something for these kids. But about three months later, I was in the car taking some of them home. And I was talking to them about graduating from high school and going to college. And little Nicholas, sitting in the front seat with me, turned to me and said Sheree, these exact words. Cherie, why are you talking to us about that? That's for other kids. It's not for us. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I realized that this racing was good, but it was not what they needed. It's not all they needed. They needed someone to make them believe that they could get educated and they could better themselves. So that's when exceeding expectations really started because our goal is to use sports to give them the skills that they need. But the overall goal is to get them educated and get them out of the environment that they're in. And uh, it's been 20 years. And we now have kids who have graduated from college. We have two that have master's degrees. Uh, Every kid in our program, if you ask them what they're going to do, the first answer is, I'm going to college. You know, and they had every right to believe that it was for other kids because I didn't know this when I picked those 12 kids and started training them. Not a one of those 12 kids had anybody in their families who had ever graduated from high school. So the expectation was that they would drop out sometime during high school. The girls would get pregnant. The boys would drop out and do whatever. That was their life. So we're trying to, and it's, it's working one kid at a time. We don't get them. We don't save them all. But uh, one kid at a time. And uh, it's my love. Is it? Other than Lee? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, what, Lee's what? right up there. <laughs> Just about. <laughs> um, but it almost comes back uh, to, you know, this this thing. I'm not sure if you're aware of it. In Ireland, for a number of years, we had this 20 by 20 supporting women in sport. And the tagline was, can't see it, can't be it. So those children, if they didn't have those older adults or those role models within their community, they couldn't identify with who they potentially could be. So by what you've done over the past 20 years is you've provided the opportunity for the kids not only to see beyond the barriers that might be there surrounding them and their existing environment, but also given them hope for the future and given them role models to aspire to be and to look up to. No more than yourself at 78 years of age being a role model to every other woman um, around the world that um, age is not a barrier to success in sport. Yeah, you know, that's that's very true. Um, in the beginning, you know, these kids were told, and I heard this over and over again, they said that they'd go home after spending time with me and they'd be told, you know, don't don't hook up with this white lady because, you know, she's, she'll leave you after a while. And uh, we had nothing to prove it that we could do this for them at that point. And now we have not just me, who's still here 20 years later, but we have 
their their peers, I mean, kids that looked like them when they started, that come back and, and show them. Because a lot of our older kids are still generally in the Southern California area, and they spend a lot of time with our younger kids. And you're saying, you know, I was you one time, and now I'm making good money. I've got a good job. I'm out of the hood. And now kids believe. And it's in the beginning where the adults were saying to the kids, you know, forget about this. The adults now believe that their kids can have a better life. I guess you have to break the cycle. Yeah. Yeah, you absolutely do. But I like that tagline. What what was it? See Uh, it? Can't see it. Can't be it. It, Can't see it. Can't be it. Yeah. Yeah. So if you can't see your role model in front okay. of you, you can't aspire to be like that role model. Um, coming back to you and your own success in sport and in business and in life, where do you think the drive came from to be so successful and to go and chase those big goals, whether it was the Ironman racing or you had a very, very successful career at the top of the executive ladder? Um, where did that drive and commitment and tenacity to to just go and grab life and make the most of it where did that come from you know i i believe that my upbringing with the parents that i had is a major thing um i i didn't have as much fun growing up as say some other kids whose parents were a little different my parents were uh there was no coddling of us I told you, you know, they said to me, if you want to play with the boys, just go out there. We don't want to hear from you. Just go out there. And there was this expectation, like, for example, in our house, there was a wall where there was a picture of each of the, there were three kids in the family uh, framed. And you got your a bigger picture when you graduated from college, which was absolutely expected that you would. And those kinds of things, they were just expectations. You absolutely are going to college and you're going to do this. And when I played badminton, my mother went to every game and said, you didn't work hard enough. <laughs> and and I think that even though I wasn't necessarily enjoying that kind of an upbringing, I, I thank them for it because I, I believe that that's one of the things that has created this person and what I am and the drive that I have. What excites you about triathlon? Um. Uh, probably having the opportunity to do something that is hard and unexpected of somebody like me <laughs> and uh being having the opportunity I, you don't i don't always succeed but having that opportunity to do it there's lots of the listeners who are going to be tuning in going oh my word she is amazing how does she keep doing it i've never done a travel in my life how do i take it up I know you were in your 40s. Was it the your 40s when you started triathlon? 48. Right, so, 40, mm-hmm. 48. so in fact, you were nearly 50. Mm-hmm. Wow. For any of the listeners who are maybe contemplating taking up a big challenge, whether that's triathlon or a marathon or whatever their challenge is, what advice would you give to them about getting started? You know, the first thing I would say is do not be afraid. You go into something new and... The only failure is being afraid to try. Um, You know, you may look stupid doing it. You may not succeed. Things may not go the way that you want them to. But so what? So what? Jump right in. You figure it out as you go along. You know, I always say you jump off the cliff and build your wings on the way down. Don't just stand on top of the cliff saying, I'd like to do it, but I'm afraid. 
just jump. And the, the worst thing that can happen is you'll, you won't accomplish it, but figure out what you did wrong and go back and try it again and try it again and try it again as many times as you have to. But you can spend your life saying, what if, what if I had tried this and or you can get out there and do it. You know, one of the things that I have sometimes when I give talks, I call it my what if talk. There are times when I can wake up in a cold sweat and think, what would my life be if I had not tried that first triathlon, that first Ironman? I would never have known I had it in me ever. And if I'd have gone my whole life not knowing that, and, and so that would be my first advice to people that want to do it is, you may have something inside you, go find it, go find it. I guess I got a little bit from my folks, you know, <laughs> just, just go do it. Uh, but that would be the first advice. And then, you know, once somebody started, if it was triathlon or something, I would help with a little coaching, but you got to get somebody to dive into it first. <laughs> How has the sport changed from when you got involved in Ironman and got involved in triathlon to the current times oh gosh it's it's changed a lot um but once the gun goes off the race is still exactly the same but um in the early days you know i was there in the paula newby fraser days uh aaron baker the biggest change that i feel every time i go back have for the last 10 15 years is that we used to be uh closer you know, there were fewer of them, there were fewer of us, and uh, the whole thing was just smaller. And so we knew the pros, you know, right now, Mark and, and Dave and Greg are all good friends, but that came from the early days. And now, you know, I'm not sure there are some pros that I could pass in the street and I wouldn't recognize. them. <laughs> and so that's a, that's a big change. Um, certainly, there are more women, and that's happening more every year. And I'm a big proponent of that. I think it's great. Too many women that I've seen along the way came with their husbands who were racing and stood on the sidelines. And now more of them are jumping in too, which I think is great. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, the the corporation itself has become big business. When I first started, it was, it was not big business. It was just a little grassroots sport. Um, but you roll with the punches on that one and I'm all for big business if it's if it's a good business and I think WTC is definitely so I guess those are the major changes that I've seen but like I said once the gun goes off it's same old same old yeah and it's still 100 <laughs> it's still 140.6 miles <laughs> yes it is <laughs> did you enjoy racing on Thursday pretty much the women's day I know there were a couple of male age groups in that race, but was it very different racing on Thursday? And did you enjoy it? Um, you know, uh, it was odd. And I kept, it, it was the, the week before, the few weeks before, a couple of weeks before, it was hard to, to gear to Thursday. You always tended to gear to Saturday. So, but that was just, you know, logistics and getting used to something new. But as far as just racing with women, you know, they started that in the 70.3s a few years ago. And I had never uh, enjoyed necessarily just early in running and early triathlons. I, I was not one of those that tended to go to women's races. I don't know why. Um, 
But so when they split them up, I wasn't sure how I was going to like it. But I love it. I think it's it's really good. Uh, not that women aren't aggressive racers, but there's just a lot more safety in just to have being out there with women. And, you know, it's better for the guys. They don't have the us to, to worry about. Um, and so I, it was fine. And the guys that were out there with us, uh, you know, this year, it was fine. It was. Uh, and I think as well, um, we also got to see the the women's race and got to enjoy, say, the women's professional race rather than it being, yes. I suppose, aired alongside the men's race. We actually got to see full on how exciting the women's professional racing was, which was which was really cool, I have to say. I would absolutely say that that for the for the pro women, that that the split up is absolutely the best thing that ever happened. Um, speaking of women in sports, you've been in the sport a very long time. I'm sure the barriers are still similar. Um, I know we've moved on a lot over the past 30 or 40 years in sport, but barriers that you see for women to get into the sport of triathlon or to Ironman, what barriers do you see and how can we overcome them as females in the sport? Um, you know, I, I'm guessing that a lot of people would disagree with me on this, but I think most of the barriers to women getting in the sport come from the mindset that women have that this is like i said their their husband's sport or their boyfriend's sport i i just don't think that we've somehow let women know that they can be as tough as the guys that they can take on a huge challenge now it's a problem and i don't know how how individual people solve this but when you've got children um because two people in this life has got to be tough. You know, your kids can't, you can't expect your kids to understand that you sit tight. I'm going out for a hundred mile bike ride. You know, you've got to work that out somehow. And the women have to stand up and, and say, we're going to share this. It's not just for you. It's for me too. I think the women are getting better about that a lot better all the time. But I think that's the first barrier. I, I really think some of the barriers that we talk about are are we're the doors aren't closed they're there to be opened women have to be ready to walk through them and there's also that whole can't see it can't be a thing so the more it, we see of women yes the more people are inspired the more they can see themselves in the sport and in long distance racing not just sprint olympic or middle distance but actually stepping up to yeah. that full distance ironman i think it's going to help with people like you and Clarissa doing something that's always been done by men. I love those guys, but there's no reason that women shouldn't be doing it. You are just as good as they are. And that kind of thing is going to help, you know, when we see, we, and then, you know, we see Diana Birch in a major role in this thing. Um, it's there. Women just have to realize that it's not just for you women and, and us, it's for them too. Absolutely. And it's breaking those barriers maybe. And putting the best foot forward and, and a little bit of self-belief as well, I think, in that you can do what you set out to do, even though it might seem yeah. like a monster challenge. Before we finish up, I want to ask, who inspires you? Because you inspire lots and lots of people and particularly women. But who inspires you? Um, you know, I uh, admire greatly the pros. They are just superhuman. But 
when I go to a race or watch an Ironman, the people that inspire me are the young folks who are raising kids and doing this. Uh, Chris Nickich, who um, uh, you know is overcoming tremendous barriers, the challenged athletes, the older folks, uh, all those people who you would not expect to be able to do this and have done just what I was talking about before. They have just simply jumped off the cliff and figured it out, and they're doing it. Those are the people that inspire me. I love watching the fast pros, but my inspiration comes from the, the, the everyday man. And if you could give one piece of advice to the listeners about long distance racing, what would it be? Well, this may not be the kind of thing you're looking for, but <laughs> go do it. <laughs> give it a try. You can do it if you give it a try. Okay, we're nearly there now. I'm going to keep asking you just rapid fire questions. Are you going to okay. go back to Kona as a spectator and enjoy the magic of the big island in 2023? Um, undecided. Uh, when I stopped the first time, I did go back for the first couple of years. We have a big trip planned to um, for on a biking tour in Spain and this year. So that may, we may do that instead of Kona. The answer is, I don't know. We might okay, so- or we might not. So when are you going to Spain? In April. Oh, because if it was around August, you could have raced at Ironman Ireland 70.3 in Cork on a second transatlantic <laughs> trip. You know, one problem is I am not good in the cold. Never have been. But as I've gotten older, it's gotten worse. And Ireland is cold, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so that may not be at the top of my list. (laughs) It's not as warm as where you are right now, but um, yeah, it might be a little bit too chilly. Well, it's the water that gets me. You know, I can put up with the other stuff, but the water just, I go hypothermic too easily. So the answer to your question is uh, I I would go back to Kona. Maybe if we don't do it in 23, we'll probably do it in 24. I love the place. And I, when I quit, stopped doing it on my own terms, I'm happy there. Okay. And then my final question is, what's next? Um, I don't know for sure. I I certainly am going to uh, focus on the 70.3s. I'm not going to go to the world championships in Finland, but I am going to go when I'm 80 to uh, New Zealand. And you can say you heard it here. Wow. Uh, So, you know, that will be my focus. But uh, I, I do not know. For the next few months, I'm just going to spend more time with my kids because getting ready for Kona this year, uh, you know, there were times when I couldn't be with them and I wanted to. So I will spend more time with the kids. But but I'm not leaving the world of triathlon by any means. Good. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show. It was an absolute pleasure to meet you again in person in Kona to watch you come down that finish line. It brought a tear to my eye and you are genuinely a huge inspiration to so many of us around the world. And I wish you the very best of luck with the next chapter of triathlon, wherever that may bring you. And I look forward to seeing you in New Zealand when you're 80. Holy moly. (laughs) Thank you very much. I've enjoyed this. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can get in touch with any feedback or guest suggestions by emailing me on trytalkingsport at gmail.com. If you would like to hear more great episodes of the podcast, be sure to check them out on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. With lots of episodes of the show now available, there's a huge back catalogue of inspiration and motivation to choose from. You can follow all of our activities and podcasts on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. 
If you have any feedback or guest suggestions, please email me on trytalkingsport at gmail.com. I really would love to hear from you. Until next time, thanks for listening. Stay safe, keep smiling, and remember to look for fun and adventure in every day.